0: How are you doing today? Hey, hey, Robin, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. We're hitting end of quarter. Everybody's panicking. I've got salespeople knocking on my door pretty much every few moments. And I'm oh, sure as a sales engineer, you're doing the same outbound. Same exact thing. Same exact thing. So in that case, let's keep it brief. Let's get straight to the tech. What do you
1: have for me today? Robin, I'd love to talk to you today about some news that just hit the wire a matter of a couple days ago as of the time that we're recording this podcast, and that is about the seventh branch. Now, if that doesn't sound mysterious enough to intrigue, I I don't know what will, but. The seventh branch of (laughs) what? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're talking about the seventh branch of the United States military. Now, there is not a seventh branch currently today of the United States military. There are six branches, but the intent or the proposal is to create a seventh branch. So I wanted to tell you the story about it and and kind of how this thing has really suddenly surged to the forefront. Please so, do. Please do. Yeah. So on March 26th, there is a uh, kind of a consortium, a group of folks known as the Military Cyber Professionals Association that drafted up a memorandum and sent it to the United States Congress. Now, let's take a step back. Who is the Military Cyber Professionals Association? This is a group of both current and former military digital security leaders. So these are the folks in the military, the U.S. Department of Defense, who serve as leadership in cybersecurity efforts. Now, this memorandum that they created was essentially made up of six points, Robin. And I want to go through each of those six points because it really is the essence of of sort of what we want to cover here. And I want to bring that back around to the private sector. So point number one was that this group recommended that the united states create a seventh branch uh, they proposed it as the united states cyber force so create an entire branch united states military has army navy air force marines coast guard space force and now we're proposing the cyber force so that was point number one mm-hmm. point number two was that the u.s citizens have been waiting for a strong national defense in cyberspace uh, there was even a little bit of snark robin which i know you're going to appreciate this tremendously but the, what they what they indicated in point number 2 was that arpanet right is is old news so whatever superiority we thought we had in developing arpanet that's pretty old
0: <laughs> yeah to call arpanet new or up to date well, that would be really pushing the envelope of what new means. That's right. So it's, it, it's been a while since we've had good innovation come out of the U.S. military regarding cyber defense. So
1: well, I think this is a good move forward. Yeah, you're actually rolling right into point number three, Robin, which is exactly what this consortium said. They said that the problem today is that our cybersecurity efforts are disjointed because each of those services that I mentioned to you has their own groups, uh, as well as the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, right? There's just multiple groups. Some of the numbers that I saw, and of, of course it's going to be hard to pin it down, but 130, 140, 160 different teams that are attempting to do this. And the point of this consortium is that cyberspace is really a highly contested space. Boy, that's putting it lightly, right? And that. This needs a fully focused branch uh, in order to, to have the appropriate uh, focusing and targeting.
0: I so, completely understand where they're headed. Sure. In a former life, kind of way back in the career, I was a military contractor working for multiple pan-governmental defense bodies right. and trying to get any work done across multiple security domains or multiple units or multiple organizations you could go nowhere. It was just a myriad of paperwork, and people were more focused on the administration and their corner of their life instead of looking at the full security posture. That's so right. So, is it proposing that the seventh branch will have governance or oversight over the remaining six?
1: No, I think what they're really looking at is let us stand up an entire branch, and that is their focus. With I, I believe the the terminology that was used was all the trappings of an official branch of The military but they did caution and and this i think goes right to your point they cautioned that we need to be urgent about that but not be hasty so the suggestion is you know do a study in how we unify all of these teams how we bring them all together as a branch and then establish a timeline um, by which we're going to do that. Now, that's probably good news to threat actors. At least they're going to have a timeline and a Gantt chart, right? That they can mm-hmm. they can work and, and understand when this new force will, will be set up. But it, that really sort of spills into point number five, which is the pool of talent, Robin. Uh, exactly what you're asking about. We have these teams, all these pools of talent across different branches that also believe that this is needed. But each of those smaller organizations has been very uh, custom in, in the types of talent that they have brought on board. And the thought process here is that with that pool of people that we have, if we centralize this into a branch, then the military can really base the, 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 the hiring of that talent, hiring if you will, upon the, the, the vision and the mission that is basically set from the highest level and, uh, and then, and then bring it out that way. Eventually this takes us to point number six, which, uh, uh point number six, number six was great because, uh, I, I kind of refer to it as, you know, the putting a little bit of sugar on the bitter medicine, which is, uh, the sugar was to, to say that, you know, they were, this group was grateful that it was being considered, but this is in the nation's most vital interests. So a little bit of thank you on top of that sense of urgency. So you know, from a congressional standpoint, Robin, uh, at, you know, at the, at the nation-state level, a lot of folks in the U.S. Congress feel that this is actually an inevitable thing. You know Well,
0: Well, we're seeing every day there's new attack, cyber threats. Cyber warfare has become a huge part of the modern trench attacks. That's right. No longer are people sending individuals out to war. We're sending drones. We're sending UAVs, and even on home turf, we have people attacking our governments, our borders, our boundaries from anywhere they can. Yeah. So it's a very sorry. After you,
1: no, no, you're you're right. I you you brought to mind a, a quote by um, uh, Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. So he uh, obviously in the leadership, he he said, you know, this cyber command thing that the United States has today isn't. It's not a branch it's basically just a, an a aso- loosely associated team of of just over 6000 individuals and he says look they're they're really operating inefficiently and that you know that that the current cyber command really isn't putting enough focus or emphasis on offensive security and so the 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 talent pipeline isn't being properly examined it isn't being properly encouraged in the methodology so you're you're spot on robin with with what you're saying there and it's been identified internally so uh, you know I, I guess to try to pull it all together and that that's certainly looking at the at the military sector of of one of the countries here in the world but what does this have to do with private sector organizations right especially <laughs> You know, private sector organizations that say, you know what, we can't really afford a full-on cybersecurity team. Robin, I'm sure you see it too, as you talk to, you know, uh, customers or prospects of Cato Networks. They, you know, they might have one or two individuals, and 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 that's that's really all that they can afford. And in the meantime, they have to do maybe their networking job or or, or whatever it is they're assigned to. So, you know, oftentimes. When that question comes to me, when when folks say, you know, how how can we afford that? My my first thought is, really, how can you afford not to? Uh, there's there's really so much risk that's involved here. And and yes, I I know you know if we look at the at the military in the United States and and this grand plan to stand this up, there, there's certainly many more resources from which they can call. What about our customers? What about our prospects? What about private sector? you know corporations uh, that that are that are really trying to protect uh, not only their intellectual property but protect the identities of their people to protect infrastructure i mean the list goes on and on and and the answer to that is that really whether you're talking about something like uh, you know something simple like firewall as a service all the way up to you know a full suite of services like managed detection and response Really, it it's the need is to share security context, right? That is so incredibly important and and that does take both technology and people so that the whole of your security posture, so to speak, becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And and look, Robin, I'm I'm super biased. I really think that a single vendor sassy solution is the answer. Right. Because all of the intel the the shared context, all of the people that come with that taken to a simple uh, OPEX model for those private sector organizations. Robin, it's it's powerful. It's cost effective. That is a way that that you can, uh, I'll air quote it, stand up that team that is focused on that without having to uh, to make some of those investments in large on-site teams and that gives you the ability for that small team that you may have to to let them get even more deeply focused on uh, you know deeper uh you know things like threat hunting or threat intelligence and so forth it just makes all the sense in the world so
0: I think uh, there's another side to that as well it's not just about the team size but single vendor versus multiple vendor you might say you can get sassy from employing two to three vendors theoretically yeah. Sure. However, two to three vendors is two to three different operational styles, two to three different companies you have to work with and engage with. Yeah. And just like we're seeing with the a proposed seventh branch, mm-hmm. skills and technologies are out there, but okay. the internal politics, the internal differing contexts prevent people from working together. So, such right. a vendor is effectively what the US government are doing in a macrocaustic way. That's right. You know, the issues that we're seeing in private enterprise also being seen in public enterprise. Sure. At the end of the day, a vulnerability is a vulnerability. A security incident is a security hole. And threat actors don't really care if they're targeting nation states or little Doris at the bingo hole.
1: Yeah, Rob, you're right. And, and so uh, a multi-vendor sassy solution, you still are going to be exerting all kinds of cycles to, you know, whether it's getting them to work and play well together or to just get them on a common vision, right? That can be... That that can be a struggle, and and so what do we see today? Uh, we we see teams that that you know maybe potentially insufficient, and and here's the thing, right? And I I, I want to pivot into this because I know you've got something exciting to bring to us today. What we see happening w- without the benefit of this kind of unified look is threat intelligence is constantly moving. It's constantly new things are coming to the surface. And we had one come out recently. And what do we see actually taking place? And I know you've seen it. I certainly have seen it as well. Um, It's panic. Uh, What do we do? Uh, How do we get protected against something like this, especially when it's a high-risk vulnerability with a low point of entry to actually execute it. Oh my goodness, right? That, that's very, very scary. And I think you've got one to talk to us about today that, again, if we take this new approach, uh, it, it becomes kind of a, a non-incident. But uh, why don't you tell us what's going on in the world of, of uh, Microsoft Outlook and email?
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, on the topic of not panicking, what's the term B? Oh, there, there was a term, it's a BP, not P. I uh, forget it. No worries. But anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I remember studying it in the CISP, but that was many moons ago. So Microsoft, a new critical vulnerability has been announced for Microsoft, Microsoft Outlook. Now, if you want to look it up, it's CVE 2023-23397. Oh, really catchy. I don't think it's been given a logo yet. I don't think it's been given a buzzword like shell shock or Heartbleed. Right. But it feels like it's been a while since we've had something with very good marketing behind the CVEs.
1: Yeah, I I, but, I thought about calling it. I lost my hash. I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs>
0: hash. Uh, well, hash <laughs> loss. I know that's legal in some countries or some states <laughs> of the US, but <laughs> yeah, maybe one. Colorado. You're right now, this Outlook CVE is a little bit scary. It's a little bit scary um, because it's a no-touch, zero-execution vulnerability. Right. No user involvement is required, and without touching anything, you could be prone or victim to the attack now in short a user will receive a malicious calendar invite into their inbox and the attacker can then access your active directory credentials that's very high level now this is effectively an eop an escalation of privilege vulnerability it is very low complexity to uh, to abuse and microsoft have released a patch but and this is the big but you've got to install the patch You've got to protect yourself. You're going to have to take active steps to mitigate this vulnerability. Now, our Cato research teams, we looked at the CVE when it was available. We looked at all of the the problems that it might be indicating with, and yes, we do protect. So first of all, we protect against this. we do it. However, the interesting thing is that companies out there, if you have an IPS, and an IPS generally stops CVE attacks, Most IPSs won't detect this at all because it'll bypass the IPS completely. It's a a message. You're getting a calendar invite. This is escalating the privileges on the local application stack. Now, if you were to... Let's get a little bit nerdier. Let's get a little bit deeper. Now, if I'm an attacker, I can craft a MSG file. Uh, That's a standard Outlook messaging file format. Now, I can send yourself the MSG file through an SMB, through a server message block. And before you know it, your machine has opened the the calendar invite. You opened opened the message, and it's hooked into the uh, the play remote sound API endpoint. So you know every time you get an Outlook email, you get that little ding, 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 ding. Yep, that's the attack vector. There's an issue, a privilege escalation based around that sound. Now this generally only happens if you use NTLM and you're using a UNC, a Universal Naming Convention, to get there. And there's lots of great documentation out by Microsoft. But this is something that gets very, very scary. This is an attack where most IPS vendors can be completely mitigated. This is not an attack that comes through user, oh, sorry, individual engineering. This is not an attack that comes from your users being miseducated and going somewhere and giving away their credentials. This could exist by somebody just sending you a meeting invite, a calendar invite. Question, Bill, do you allow anybody in the world to send
1: you calendar invites or do you have an access control list enabled? (laughs) You know, you you better have an access control list enabled, right? (laughs) Especially in light of this. And I have a a feeling a lot of folks are going to do that. So yeah, corporate protections. And then of of course, from a personal perspective, that that has to be there. So, you know, look into allow and deny lists, if nothing else, that's that's the basics.
0: Indeed, indeed. I mean, when the outlook client today if it receives that message invite if it receives that calendar it's actually going to send the net ntlm hash back to the attacker so the attacker gets a lot of data it doesn't just get the accept or deny or tentative message responses Mm -hmm. they get uh, the username they get the domain name and they gain a lot of internal data points which can be used to either directly attack or to be stored for later for a larger scale social engineering or targeted attack. Right. Now, sorry, I'm, I'm monologuing again. So please
1: interrupt <laughs> me at any point. Yeah. No, you're you're nailing it. And by the way, just you know, let let's put it in terms that that maybe folks understand that that have a rudimentary cybersecurity uh, background. Right. That this is essentially lining us up for a past the hash attack. And if you're not familiar with that, just go do a quick search. They're not exfiltrating passwords. They're not exfiltrating credentials per se. They're getting a hash, but they don't even need to reverse that. Well, you can't reverse a hash, right? There's no such thing. But you're right. All they have to do is store that hash, and then later, they have the the ability to do it. And I, I, I you know, you called it out, Robin. SMB as a protocol man, you got to be careful, right? There's there's things you can do that are so absurdly simple to protect against uh, vulnerabilities from an SMB perspective. So mm-hmm. yeah, educate yourself. But
0: at least it's better than NetBIOS. And I know some customers out there are still using NetBIOS instead of SMB for their shares. And that's it's even very, worse. So please avoid worst. that. Please, please avoid that. <laughs> right. So when we were looking at this vulnerability and we were looking at our entire Cato customer base, we did identify that First of all, it was bypassing the IPS. The IPS wasn't being triggered because it's not a traditional CVE that could be hit with an IPS. And this will be not just a Cato problem. This is impacting all security vendors out there, every single one of them, because the intrusion prevention system at its heart is looking for signatures. It's looking for specific traffic uh, traffic pattern matching to then take an action. But because this is a hash theft, this is an escalation vulnerability we need to start looking at the outbound communications. So in the event your endpoint client has been stolen, it's been compromised with this attack, this is where your outbound firewall can actually kick in and start blocking the traffic going outbound. Now, if you're a Kato customer, you're protected. Somebody attacks you, they try and steal your hash, we identify the source, the destination, the domains, the reputation, and we can actively block this right now. And don't worry, we are still looking to see if there's a definitive IPS signature we can add to have an extra layer. If you're a customer or if you're in an environment that heavily replies on a fragmented product approach, maybe you have firewalls from vendor A, you have IPSs from vendor B, you have network access controls from vendor C. I'm not going to name names, you know, it's, it's not good to throw stones in glass houses. Sure. But if you have that approach, you have to try and ensure that every single one of those point solutions you have have a unified definition, a unified context. They're inspecting packets the same way. They have this very same user source and destination definitions. And you have to verify that data being passed from point A to point B have a full context information. Right. Now for 99% of the vendors out there, you are not going to have full definition. Heck, if, if you've ever done network monitoring and you're trying to look at, I don't know, NetFlow data versus SNMP data, Told the you. same data but you have different granularities, you have different sample rates, you have different bucket sizes, you have different packet sizes. That can lead to confusion. So when you're looking at your defense in depth approach to maintaining network perimeter security, diversifying your vendors, trying to spread them out as far and wide as possible, you're actually causing more problems than, than solutions. Certainly can. With a un- yeah, with a unified approach like Cato and you know other vendors out there, but I am biased. Let's say Cato. With a unified approach like Cato, We are looking at every stage of the attack lifecycle to ensure that data cannot be stolen. So if somebody used this Outlook vulnerability, they got into your machine, they tried stealing the hash, we would block you. We would lock you down. We would generate events. We would show compromised data. So not only do we prevent the attack, we can show the administrators exactly who was compromised, when they were compromised, and actions taken. So you can do remediation steps to verify all Outlook clients are updated. That's right. Yes yeah, so what what's what's the term you used earlier with with all the sprinkles was that the one <laughs> I don't all, know all if the I bells ever used are, to work. all the bells and knobs all the whistles <laughs> <laughs>
1: with the sprinkles I love it all the sprinkles
0: I forget it yes uh, but hey that's how we're protecting it though this outlook vulnerability is still pretty damn scary because out sure. there there's hundreds of thousands of individual devices that will be vulnerable there's individual, huge amount of corporations and even though the attack rate of this vulnerability still might be quite low, if you don't patch, if you don't protect now, this CVE might fade into obscurity, but you could be attacked next year. You could be attacked in six months, in 19 months, That's as right. the industry is always focused on the shiny, lovely new stuff, and we often forget things of the past. Log4J's out there, still making problems. leads out there, still making problems. That's right. And... This Outlook CVE is going to cause lots of pains for lots of other people. Unless you're a Kato customer, we're already protecting. And as a customer, you haven't got to do anything. We just automatically protected and secured you. So you don't have to
1: worry about this vulnerability. That's right. Because we have the team, right? We have the team. And that's the key. We we have the team. You don't have to build it. But, you know, we have
0: built it. And what was the quote? If you build it, they will come. We have built it. Oh, come join Kato. Come join there the Sassy platform. That's the way forward. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for your time today, Bill. And I yeah, apologize thanks for to that, listening Robert. to my monologue. You know, uh, Always a pleasure. Thank you <laughs> okay. Until next time, stay safe out there.
1: Bye-bye.